stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. All right, well, today the Americans uh, following in the footsteps of Canada and announcing that they are going to ban Russian oil and gas products. So this is significant. Obviously, look, the U.S. does import more Russian energy than does Canada. Still less than 10% in the United States, but it is significant. It is a significant amount, and it is going to add to the pressure right now on global supply. We're likely to see higher prices as a result. But going forward, what does this mean then to other oil-producing countries? Certainly the U.S. seems to be looking abroad for other countries to fill some of the void globally, to add to supply, to maybe help ease some of these price increases. What does it mean for Canada, though? You know, certainly, you know, being obviously the biggest uh, exporter of of oil and gas to the United States, we certainly have a role to play, I think, in, in helping the Americans meet demand. And I think globally, you know, this came up this week, Latvia's ambassador calling on Canadian natural gas imports to help Europe reduce its reliance on Russian energy. There was also a story this week, a Canadian developer of Ukrainian solar projects saying we need a made in Canada solution when it comes to helping provide energy to Europe. So I think we're, we're seeing a recognition of this. Is Canada poised to seize the moment here? And what might that look like? Joining us for some thoughts on, on some of these big picture questions, very pleased to welcome in the program here this afternoon, uh, Cody Battershill, of course, founder of Canada Action, CanadaAction.ca. Cody, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Thanks, Rob. Thanks for having me. Obviously, you know, I mean, this is this is, uh, you know, an important moment in in world history here that we're kind of living through, it feels like. But, you know, I think there there is potentially an opportunity here for Canada to help address the situation that this crisis is creating. What do you see as as the crisis, as the opportunity here? What does this all potentially mean from a Canadian perspective? Absolutely, Rob. I mean, first and foremost, this is not about commerce. This is not about profit. This is about trying to help the Ukrainian leadership, asking for sanctions on Russian oil and gas, helping Latvia, helping uh, our allies and partners around the world. You know, you look at Boris yeah. Johnson talking about getting the uh, UK off of Russian oil and gas. You look at NATO, you look at Elon Musk saying we need more oil and gas. Even if it hurts Tesla in the short term, we cannot replace Russia's oil and gas with uh, wind and solar today. And I'm pro-wind and solar. I'm pro renewables. I'm also pro-reducing emissions, but I'm also pro-reality. And the reality is Canada has an important role to play. Oil and gas, potash, uranium, agriculture, mining, forestry products, all of the above in strong demand. And now we need to think strategically for the future. Where should the world be buying these important building blocks of modern society from? And I think it's Canada. And I think we need to have this honest conversation. Pipeline obstructionism in our country has meant that today we're not exporting oil and natural gas to Europe. We don't have the opportunity to do that unless we sell it through the United States. And I think we need to honestly uh, uh, talk about that and how we're going to fix that for the future as quickly as possible. Yeah. You know, and it feels like there, there were a lot of voices that, that were sort of warning of, of exactly this kind of situation, that this was the, the, the sort of thing we needed to be laying the groundwork for and not wait until we were in the midst of a crisis to, to realize this. I, I think, unfortunately, that didn't happen. Maybe this marks a, a turning point. Maybe this, this marks a, a bit of a wake-up call, but it, it does feel like we're, we're playing a bit of catch-up here. 
It does, and it's unfortunate. I mean, I've been talking about energy security and the environmental benefits of Canadian oil and gas now since 2010, when Lush Cosmetics was opposing Canadian pipelines in Vancouver, but not doing the same thing anywhere else. And we don't need to look back and and place blame solely. We need to talk about that constructive uh, uh, strategy to move forward. That means reducing polarization and being honest, heat pumps, and electric buses is not the answer. We need more than just that. It is a part of the answer, and that means all energy. When we look forward, we've got, uh, we had 18 LNG facilities proposed in 2011. Today, one is under construction. We had Energy East, which could have got more Canadian oil to Canadian consumers, and it would have been a direct conduit to export Canadian oil to Europe. That was cancelled. And recently, there's the LNG project in Saguenay, Quebec that was cancelled. That would have helped supply Europe as well. So now, how do we marshal our ingenuity, our innovation, our people, our talent, our passion for responsible development to get Canada on the global stage and not just selling our energy within North America? Well, and I think we're, we're waiting to see or, or hear if there's, you know, a request from the Americans to increase production or if, if the White House is prepared to, you know, to reach out to Canada. But it certainly seems like other countries are, are paying attention. Like, why isn't Canada doing more? Why can't Canada do more? Is it possible that, you know, that we're going to be kind of dragged into this or that other countries are, are looking for Canada to show some leadership? They'll be hearing those kinds of requests. I think we can and we must show leadership and do as much as we possibly can. There's some good things that have already been done. Canada was importing Russian oil and refined products uh, last year. And over the last 10 years, it's actually about 13, uh, pardon me, $3.6 billion. Over the last 20 years, it's about $13 billion. And the Ukrainian leadership would say that that's been funding the war machine and the aggression. Uh, I mean, it's International Women's Day today, and I have to give a shout out to our Canadian women uh, uh, working in our resource industries and all Canadian women across the country, but also the strong Ukrainian women and their strength right now in their country trying to help their families and defend their country. And Canada, that's a part of the conversation about our leadership on social progress, equality, transparency, our values of democracy, our focus on climate. We are the most climate-focused oil and gas industry on Earth. The IEA is talking about how we're going to need oil and gas for years to come. They'd like it to come from climate-focused countries like Canada reducing emissions. So let's get the obstructionists and the know-everything groups out of the way and talk about advancing wind, solar, oil, gas, hydro, nuclear, biofuels, uranium, uh, all of the above. And then we also got to talk about potash and the other components of modern life, food, materials, and energy, and how Canada can really seize this opportunity to help families and to help strengthen global security and global values of democracy. Yeah, and, and I think a lot of that needs to happen. A lot of it is, is you know, medium to, to longer term. In the short term, do, do we have the, the ability, do we have the room to, to pivot? If, we, we, if we're asked to, to produce more, uh, if there's an increased demand for Canadian product, uh, do we have the ability, is it your sense, that we could, in the short term, increase production, that we could get creative in finding ways of, of getting that added production to market? I think if all of our governments came together to sit down with our uh, responsible energy industry across all segments of that industry and mining and everything, if we all came together and sat down and talked about what we could do and what it would take 
And what are the guarantees that something's not going to be changed in a year or two? You know, these are big decisions. It hasn't, it hasn't been great for our industry in oil and gas for, for many years now. And pipeline obstructionism being one of the keys. We were selling the world's cheapest oil back in 2018 when the differentials were $50 because of a lack of pipelines, even though we had the highest commitment to environmental improvement and climate leadership. So we need some certainty. And I know that just like we built the railway, just like we built our highways, just like we built our great country, we could get together to look at opportunities to increase production to support Canadian oil and gas producers so that we can get more production to the world. And it's going to mean fast tracking some infrastructure. We had Northern Gateway, Energy East, um, Line 5 is still up in limbo. There was, again, 18 LNG projects, including one that was recently cancelled. And the groups against those projects will not have an honest conversation about substitution. Keystone's a perfect example. Since that pipeline was originally proposed until today, oil demand around the world up more than 10 million barrels per day. And blocking that pipeline did not keep a single barrel in the ground, but it helped other producers. That's what we need to think about for six months from now, two years from now, five years from now, as the world's still using oil, how do we strengthen security and share our values? Absolutely. We'll leave it there. Much more is mentioned. CanadaAction.ca. Cody, always appreciate the perspective. Thanks for joining us here this afternoon. Cody Battersill, founder of Canada Action. My name is Rob Breckenridge. We are back with more right after this. But oil is not the only commodity that is seeing its price soar. On the food side of things, agricultural commodities, things like wheat and corn, have seen major jumps in their prices as of late. So obviously that maybe creates some opportunities for producers, but certainly that means more pressure on consumers and what we see in terms of those prices at the grocery store. So joining us to talk a bit more about why we're seeing all of this pressure on that side of uh, the commodity equation, what it all means going forward. Uh, Very pleased to welcome the program here this afternoon, uh, Sylvain Charlebois, Professor of Food Policy at Dalhousie University, Senior Director of the Agri-Food Analytics Lab. Professor Charlebois, great to have you back with us here. Welcome to the program. My pleasure. Maybe I suppose in a way a lot of this mirrors what's happening with oil, where supply and demand are out of whack and and we're seeing prices rise. But what specifically is happening on the agricultural commodity side that's leading to these surges? Well, it's uh, it's Vladimir Putin's gift to the world, a uh, Russian-induced super cycle. That's basically what what we're seeing right now. Everything is up, Uh, although things have calmed down the last 48 hours, thank goodness. No, really? Wheat is actually down a little bit, but it's over it's over twelve dollars, which is really really high uh, in terms of futures for the month of May. Uh, corn is up, barley as well. Uh, obviously, it has a lot to do with the fact that that region, in particular, Ukraine and Belarus and, and Russia, are, are big producers of, of of these grains, of these commodities, and of course, uh, also what's being hit uh, are fertilizer prices as well. That's something we don't necessarily see out in the markets because a lot of a lot of these things are li- related to uh, private contracts. But farmers uh, in Alberta and elsewhere need fertilizers to increase yields. Prices are very good, very attractive. But to take advantage of market conditions, you need fertilizers, and fertilizers are super expensive, which is why uh, a lot of people are concerned about uh, about agricultural productivity for the northern atmosphere uh, over the next uh, several months. 
Yeah, and it's interesting because I didn't realize, maybe a lot of people don't realize uh, how important Ukraine is when it comes to wheat and corn. They're amongst the top producers globally, certainly when it comes to, uh, you know, legumes, for example, Russia pulses as well. Russia's a, a big player. So with one invading the other, that that's a lot of disruption, isn't it? Yeah, no, absolutely. And and don't forget sunflower as well, actually. The, Ukraine is a right. huge producer of sunflower as well for oil and everything. No, it's it's not great. I mean, uh, we often say that Ukraine is actually the breadbasket of Europe. Uh, it does produce a lot of commodities, but also it's right next to the Black Sea. And the Black Sea is that portal uh, that actually links that region to uh, the Middle East and, and, of course, Europe. And... Um, Really, uh, if there is, if there are shortages of anything, I suspect that the Middle East will be hit first, followed by Europe, and eventually North America. I mean, we uh, we do produce a lot, and I'm not convinced that supplies are going to be an issue, uh, but prices are going to be an issue. I mean, everything is interconnected around the world. Uh, some people may wonder, well, we grow wheat here. Who cares? Yeah. Well, actually, if uh, if wheat is expensive in Ukraine, guess what? It's probably going to be expensive in Canada as well. And so that's why processors, uh, anybody, any company involved in the in the uh, in food supply chain, will probably have to revise uh, budgets uh, and costing as a result of what's going on. If, of course, if the conflict lasts, right. Well, as you say, so the commodity prices are higher, fertilizer prices are higher, and I guess, you know, the whole situation with oil and gas, that's going to affect food prices as well because you got to ship this stuff. And the cost of fuel, that's obviously going to have a bearing on, on the end price for consumers too, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. And so you need to keep that in mind. I think the biggest factor right now is oil. Uh, oil is a big driver right now. Uh, the, uh, I didn't, I didn't look at pricing the last hour, but, uh, things are so volatile right now. I believe that a barrel of oil was over $127 US at some point today. And so it's really happening fast and, and, Food industries aren't necessarily designed or hardwired to adjust so quickly uh, to uh, to shifting marketing conditions. Uh, I mean, the, the, what we're seeing, what we've been seeing the last couple of years, really uh, has been violent <laughs> for for the food industry. Oh, so, yeah. looking at what's going on the last two weeks, I would say that COVID nineteen was probably a dress rehearsal. Well, yeah, I mean, so where where does this all go from here? I, you alluded to earlier, I mean, if we could resolve this conflict, that would help. I, that that doesn't seem likely, at least in the short term, and there's, there's not a quick opportunity for producers to suddenly flood the market. So what do the next few weeks and few months hold for us? Well, short of assuring world peace, uh, I mean, we can't really, that's not, that's out of our hands. So you have to look at the economics of uh, of, of commodities, and I would say that, some of, the, some of the decisions made today uh, will likely help, uh, starting with uh, with the Americans stopping uh, to buy Russian oil, for example. I mean, the, the, the system was not very stable. We, I, I think governments need to stabilize the situation when it comes to energy, and that's basically what's happening right now. It will take a few days, but I suspect that things will stabilize after a while. So that's the most important thing. After that, I'm just hoping that companies like Nutrien and Mosaic will actually think differently about markets today, this year, to make fertilizers a little bit more affordable for farmers. Uh, it is early, 
March. Um, I'm hopeful that they actually will see their role very differently this year, but they're companies. Uh, they're out there to make yeah. money. So uh, if they if they can make more money with strong demand, they, they'll do it. We'll see how it all plays out. Uh, always appreciate the insight, uh, Sylvan. Thanks so much for making some time for us here this afternoon. All right. Take care. Bye. All the best. Uh, Sylvain Charlebois, Senior Director of the Agri-Food Analytics Lab at Dalhousie University, Professor of uh, Food Policy at Dalhousie. So a lot of things happening all at once when it comes to, you know, these these agricultural commodities. So you've got higher prices as a result of shortages. Big disruption, obviously. Ukraine produces a lot of this. Even Russia does, too. So you've got a lot coming up the market that's driving up prices. You've got fertilizer prices that are higher. So maybe a constraint for producers elsewhere who want to try to to ramp up production. Then you've got fuel prices, and that's affecting the cost of moving all of this stuff. Uh, you know, and then on top of all of that, I mean, we could still have other weather-related factors that could still wreak some havoc in the coming months here. So, yeah, there's there's a lot of different factors at play here. But it's it's another way in which we're going to get hit in the pocketbook on top of some of the inflationary pressure we've already been dealing with. And here's the tricky thing in terms of the policy implications, certainly on the monetary policy side. Last week, the Bank of Canada announced that its trend-setting interest rate was going up, and they're certainly gearing up for further interest rate hikes this year. The economy's strong. Inflation needs to be reined in. Well, look, I tell you what, I mean... The, the interest rate hikes by the Bank of Canada aren't really going to address all of these factors. So how successful is that approach going to be in reining in inflation? But the other side of it is, again, those interest rate hikes are premised on the economy being strong. With all of these, these uh, you know, supply shocks and price increases, is there a risk of a recession resulting from all of this? So that's something scary to consider. I want to revisit a, a plan that was presented shortly after the federal election. And obviously, this wasn't the kind of thing you would drop before a federal election, lest it be politicized. However, that may be the result anyway. So shortly after we uh, all voted, so or at least some of us voted on, on September 20th, I guess it was, in the middle of October, Elections Canada presented uh, its report. Now, this is an independent report by Elections Canada looking at how Canada has changed, how Canada has grown, and how Parliament should reflect that. So what Elections Canada came back with was a recommendation that the House of Commons expand uh, from 338 seats, which is still the status quo, to 342 seats. So a slight increase to represent uh, a growing population. Now, a few provinces would see increases. B.C. would add a seat. Ontario would add a seat. And interestingly, Alberta would add three seats. We would go from 34 to 37. Every other province would stay where they are at, with the notable exception of Quebec. Under this report, Quebec would lose a seat, go from 78 to 77. Now, I suspect a lot of provinces would, would probably bristle at the idea of losing representation in the House of Commons. And I suppose if any province was going to kick up a fuss, well, I suppose Alberta might as well. Uh, but Quebec certainly would. Thing is, though, the numbers justify this, both in terms of the population growth elsewhere and the opposite that has occurred in Quebec. Now, Alberta for a long time has been underrepresented. If you look at the population, you look at the number of seats, you look at the average number of people per riding, Alberta definitely should have more. 
So it was encouraging to see this report. I think we all knew, though, uh, that this was not going to be smooth sailing. And that's where we're at now. The Bloc Quebecois uh, pushing back hard against this. They tabled a motion in the House of Commons, basically calling on Parliament to denounce this plan. So where does that leave us? What is the likelihood uh, that this fairness, I guess if you want to put it that way, is going to happen? Well, joining us to talk more about it is the executive director of the group Fairness Alberta. Bill Buick joins us on the line here this afternoon. Bill, good to have you with us. Welcome to the program. Yeah, thanks, Rob. Happy to be here. All right. So like I say, this report came out in October, certainly got noticed at the time. Maybe from an Alberta perspective, it feels like it's dropped off the radar a little bit. But what's what's happened since October on this? Yeah, it did go a little quiet. Uh, but last week, the uh, first chance that the uh, Bloc Québécois had for a motion, uh, their leader, Yves Blanchet, uh, his choice, despite all the things that are going on in the world, was to uh, have try to get support for everybody to agree that Quebec should not lose a seat and moreover should have nothing that, that at all deteriorates their political power uh, was the kind of vague wording in this motion. And um, uh, I, I looked through the debate on Hansard and I saw uh, very few reasonable arguments of any sort to defend it other than just pure pandering to Quebec's uh, political elites. And uh, and there were some factually incorrect arguments made by various bloc members uh, pretending that Quebec doesn't have any protections and that somehow Quebec's going to uh, lose its voice in Ottawa. So uh, that was the motion that passed. The federal government has indicated that they will follow the will of that motion and make sure that Quebec doesn't lose a seat. Now, they haven't said exactly how they're going to meddle in the independent process that churned out the formula for what the seats should be, but we're waiting to see well, how is this supposed to work? Does the government need to uh, approve this plan or, or basically accept this plan? Or, or does Election yeah, Canada just go ahead and make the change? Uh, no, the Elections of Canada submits a report and then the, uh, the House of Commons does have to approve uh, both the number of seats. And then with that comes a, a, a whole redistricting process within each province. Uh, but the first thing is the number of seats. And apparently they're going to come up with some way to interfere and say that the Quebec will not uh, lose that seat whether it probably means they're going to add another seat to the House of Commons and not take one from the three that Alberta was supposed to get but uh, that is yet to be determined is it likely or is it possible that that would mean that fourth seat would go to Alberta or is it likely to go somewhere else do you think um well no there'd be the three for Alberta the one for Ontario and BC as you as you mentioned so that's five I suppose they will just have those five uh, added instead of four so that that one seat doesn't come from Quebec. I mean, is that still a win for Alberta? I mean, if we get these additional three seats, I mean, how hung up should we be on whether Quebec has 78 or or 77? Well, every time, well, first of all, Alberta, BC and Ontario uh, have been underrepresented uh, for for a very, very, very long time. And that's somewhat to be expected given that we have all these constitutional deals cooked in, like uh, the Maritimes getting as many as their senators. And then uh, most rec- or more recently, the 1985 rule that uh, protects some of Saskatchewan seats and some of the other provinces, as well as Quebec. So Quebec has the 1985 grandfather rule, which makes sure they never get lower than 75. Then in 2011, when uh, the government brought in a whole bunch of new seats to help get Ontario, BC, and Alberta close to closer to uh, uh, being fair, um, they also put in a rule for Quebec 
explicitly that they didn't it didn't say Quebec, but it says any province that was overrepresented will never become underrepresented, and that the only province that could ever happen to is Quebec. So there's a rule in place ensuring Quebec gets extra seats from the 1985 rule and from this representation rule from 2011. Uh, this is basically almost the only seat they could possibly lose, and that's just what the formula said. Quebec is still overrepresented, even if they lose this one seat, so they don't need that extra seat. And so that's what the rules said, and it seems pretty clear to me that it's only fair to stick with those rules and just, you know, to accept that Quebec is still overrepresented and have some sympathy for Albertans and Ontarians yeah. and British Columbians who have much bigger ridings with much less voice. So just to be clear, so, so the guarantee for Quebec, as you say, it's kind of a floor. I, I know the Charlottetown uh, Accord would have given Quebec a percentage of seats, but right now it's it's a hard number then, 75? Yes, everybody, what they had in 1985. So Quebec had 75 and oh, some other provinces had a couple more than they would be eligible for now, given demographic shifts. Uh, but there's no way they could go below 75. And then again, because of this, they'll never be underrepresented rule, um, they could... They, they can't ever be underrepresented. So I don't know how much more protection we could possibly need for any province uh, beyond that. So why did they get three more seats? It was actually under Stephen Harper uh, that uh, was the last time we, we added seats to the House of Commons. Alberta did get more then, but Quebec got more than two. Right, and that, that was partly this kind of horse trading uh, situation, I think, where they, they said... Uh, Given how much more uh, these English-Canadian provinces are about to get, uh, we'll put in this rule for Quebecers that at least guarantees you won't ever become underrepresented, even by a little bit. And so this seems like it should be more than enough uh, protection for Quebec's interest. I sure wish Alberta had a rule like that. Um, and so it's just kind of galling to see Ottawa just twisting itself up into pretzels to make sure Quebec's even more overrepresented than what Elections Canada has proposed according to the rules with no regard for the underrepresentation in uh, that will remain in Alberta, Ontario, BC. Well, that's the thing. I mean, I, I suppose the whole concept of fairness can be somewhat subjective, but if we're talking about representation, you know, there, there are numbers here to back this up. This is a very objective exercise where it's, it's pretty clear that Alberta has been underrepresented. So, Let's talk about why that matters, ultimately, because, yes, Alberta should have more seats in the House of Commons. Why is it important that we are adequately represented? Well, because there are different interests across the country. And, and the one that's kind of crystallized for me that I, I think people don't often think of, I mean, the, yes, there's Western Canada, Central Canada, Eastern Canada, um, French and English. But, but for me, the, the underappreciated coalition that I think should be speaking up for itself and thinking of themselves as allies more often is Ontario, BC, and Alberta. They're the three productive provinces, the three growing provinces. I mean, really, if Canada's going to have a prosperous, productive future, we should kind of be following their lead. But instead, Ottawa seems to constantly be, be obsessed with Quebec and often the Maritimes. And, and it's just a, a, a kind of a loser mentality to be always focusing on that instead of trying to give the tools to the growing productive parts of the country, uh, the tools they need to, to really make Canada thrive for the next 50 years. And, well, and, and that would certainly things, help, yeah. Go yeah, ahead. and one of the things is equalization. Uh, you know, people think it's just an Alberta problem. 
Um, we do make the most uh, uh, noise about it, but it, these people in BC are paying about $2,400 per family of four. If you just take all the revenues that come from BC and how much goes to equalization, $2,400 per family of four in BC and Ontario as well. And they're paying almost as much as us, but they just kind of don't really think about it. So we're, we're really trying to get people to kind of stop expecting the status quo from Ottawa, which is obsessing over Quebec and, 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 and interest. Uh, like the uh, Maritimes and start thinking about, you know, positively about growing the country and, and where the resources need to be to have Canada be a significant player in the next century. Right. And as you say, I mean, you know, it helps to, to have allies. And in this situation, I think, you know, both BC and Ontario are kind of in the same boat, even though we stand to benefit a little bit more this time around in terms of those seat allocations that, you know, we, we should have some some players on our side, shouldn't we? Yeah, just the the overweighted political influence of of the the folks east of the Ottawa River is just not really healthy for Canada's long term benefit. And and when when it comes to something like an equalization vote, well, guess what? You might have sixty five percent of the people on board, but you only have about fifty eight percent of the seats. You know, like it's just you never quite have as much influence in Ottawa as you would if the seats were more evenly balanced. And so the bigger issue is the you know the Maritimes are highly overrepresented. Um, I, I don't really have any issue with the territories each having a seat, even though they're they're just so vast that they should definitely have one MP per territory. But the, the we're already outnumbered by the Maritimes being overweighted, and just seeing Ottawa go so to go such lengths to interfere with the process to protect the seat for Quebec on top of it is is just frustrating and i feel like uh, people should be aware that quebec has more than enough protections and it's kind of la- i almost spit out my coffee when i heard about blanchette worried that uh, quebec's going to lose its influence in, in ottawa <laughs> um that's just not a concern but what is a concern is alberta's lack of influence in ottawa and and i think we need to get bc and ontario realizing that we are the ally they should be lining up with on a lot of these issues yeah, absolutely. All right, much more at fairnessalberta.ca. Bill, appreciate you joining us here this afternoon. Thanks for this. Thanks, Rob. Anytime. All the best. Bill Buick, Executive Director of the group Fairness Alberta. So calling attention to what's going on here, which is that it now seems likely that Quebec isn't going to lose a seat. So we have this motion uh, that was voted in the House of Commons. Uh, the press secretary to the Intergovernmental Affairs Minister Uh, came out and said that the government rejects any scenario where Quebec loses a seat and is working on a way to ensure that does not happen. So I think Bill's right. It is kind of laughable to have the Bloc Québécois leader uh, expressing this fear that Quebec is going to lose influence. That's not likely to happen. Look, the numbers don't lie. The, The case for Quebec going from 78 to 77 MPs is sound. I get to the government, it's politically problematic. Who wants to be the government that took seats away from Quebec and therefore lost votes in Quebec? Stephen Harper in 2011 added three seats to Quebec. That's when they went from 75 to 78. Maybe if he'd only done two at the time, it would be a moot point. I don't know. Look, the important thing is that Alberta still get additional seats. But maybe if this part of this this uh, report isn't going to go ahead, it, it does weaken that, or at least waters it down a little bit. So we'll see what all happens here.
certainly, you know, for homeowners, there was a lot of uh, inflationary pressure these days, including uh, the monetary policy response to inflation. The Bank of Canada uh, last week announcing uh, the first increase in a few years in their trend-setting interest rate and likely to see more interest rate hikes this year. Now, hopefully that will rein in inflation, but in the meantime, it is going to mean those with mortgages, or at least on variable rate mortgages, paying more. And for other Canadians servicing other debt as well. Uh, some new data from the Angus Reid Institute finds that this is putting a lot of pressure on homeowners. Budgets already squeezed by mortgages. Three in five Canadian mortgage holders say their payments crowd out other portions of their budget. And a lot of renters say the same thing. So joining us to talk more about what impact this is all having, very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, Shachi Curl, who is president of the Angus Reed Institute, more at angusreed.org. Shachi, great to have you with us here this afternoon. Welcome to the program. Always a pleasure to be with you. Well, we appreciate making time for us. So let's talk about the impact this is all having. And, you know, it seems like a lot of mortgage holders, even those who are paying rent, uh, don't have a lot of wiggle room. No, they don't. And that wiggle room, what little they had um, for those that, that had not very much to begin with, is now being squeezed by uh, the the dual realities and impacts of two years of a pandemic and the impacts on global supply chains. So we're seeing food costs rising, other costs rising, and now, of course, the impact of of the terrible invasion of Ukraine uh, by uh, Vladimir Putin, which, of course, as we know, has sent uh, the cost of uh, petroleum, oil and gas skyrocketing. You know, I'm talking to you. You're you're in Alberta. I'm in B.C., uh, a liter of gas now, just regular, regular 87 grade gas, 209, $2.09 a liter. Um, So not really the best place to be a lot of folks do and they rely on those if they're small business owners and others all of that to say this is just it's one more heavy weight it's like you're at the gym you're working out with your trainer lifting as much as you can and now they've just put a little bit more and a little bit more and it's starting to become too much of a lift for homeowners and by the way for renters as well yeah, and it's important to think of them as well. I mean, we think of mortgage rates, obviously, as those who hold those mortgages, those who own homes, but obviously rental properties also have owners, and they also have mortgages, and so that's going to translate into higher costs for, for those who are renting. And yeah, we see a lot of the similar similar kinds of pressures, both for homeowners and, and for renters. Well, the, the cost pressures and, and, the, and the upward thrust of cost and the downward pressure that it puts on both mortgage payers and rent payers um, are are similar. What what is different, of course, is chances are particularly uh, in places um, like Edmonton, like Calgary, where the real estate market hasn't been as bananas and hot as it has been uh, in other parts of the country. Although it is rebounding, uh, what we're seeing is you know maybe maybe uh, more people actually own than rent in Canada's biggest cities, that's not necessarily the case anymore. You can be earning a decent income and still choosing to rent because the cost of even getting into the market is so prohibitive or the competition to get in is so prohibitive. Either way, we know, for example, that renters tend to be lower income, so any upward cost for them uh, is is something that they are 
by dint of earning less income that they are less able to absorb. If you're a higher income earner and you're carrying a mortgage, you know, you're really finding yourself thinking now not just about, well, if if, if, uh, if uh, interest rates go up 25 basis points as a one-off, Maybe that's 12 or $13 a month you can absorb that. But if we see, for example, from the central bank, another three, four, five uh, interest rate increases over the lifetime of that homeowner's mortgage in the short term, if you're on a five-year fix, uh, this is this is going to get a little bit scary and precarious for you. I think a lot of homeowners are going to start looking at how much do I have left on this thing and how much can I pay down because before I have to go back to the bank to, to renegotiate? Yeah, you do see some differences between owners and renters uh, on the question of you can manage your payments quite easily. 42%, so a minority of homeowners uh, are, are willing to give that answer. Only 26%, so barely over a quarter of renters are able yeah. to give that answer. So that leaves a lot of Canadians, as we talked about earlier, without that wiggle room. So it means watching spending, limiting spending, maybe even cutting back elsewhere. Well, watching the extras is already something that's happening for almost half of mortgage payers. Uh, and then for for another significant segment, about one in about one in six, they're already saying, you know what, it's it's curbing my lifestyle it's already making things tight there are trade-offs that had to be made or it's a real struggle to make ends meet now you know you have folks who who because we have generally been a home owning country in in canada people often feel like there's a pressure to get into the market well once you're there of course you've got to you've got to meet the lift you've got to make those payments uh and and so you do find that particularly for about one in six mortgage payers in this country, that is becoming an increasingly difficult uh, lift to make. Uh, For the rest, they're watching the bottom line. Everyone's watching the bottom line these days, but they're keeping an eye on it a little bit, perhaps a little bit more closely than they would have in the past. Yes, indeed. Well, more on all of these numbers is mentioned, angusreed.org. Shachi, thanks so much for making some time for us here this afternoon. Appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Take care. Uh, Shachi Curl is president of the Angus Reed Institute, angusreed.org. So this latest research on cost of living and what it means to homeowners and home renters, because the pressures, I, I suppose, are, are similar, different in some ways, obviously, but some common threads there for sure. And yeah, I, I mean, in a historic context, interest rates are still quite low. But at the same time, housing prices are a lot higher as well. So that's something else to factor in is, you know, the, the size of these mortgages. So, yeah, the, the rate is still lower than it's been in the past, but, you know, the prices are way higher. So not a surprise that you see that pressure. And again, I mean, you know, it's not something the Bank of Canada is oblivious to, but obviously they've decided, look, we got to tackle inflation here. The concern, though, is like, what if this doesn't work? Because there's so many external factors that are affecting inflation, we could end up with kind of the worst of both worlds potentially here. And so that's a real concern. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770CHQR.com. Talk to you next time. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.